Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. Um, this is class seven of our 12 class uh, Truth of Happiness Dhamma study. I'm sorry, Meg, I talked right over you, didn't I? How are you? No, you didn't. It's okay. I have a poor connection, so. Well, I'm glad you're here. Um, this is the seventh class of our 12 class Truth of, ha- 12 class Truth of Happiness Dhamma study. Uh, this class is on the central theme of the Dhamma, meaning the three marks of existence. Uh, there's a, a, a modern, in modern Buddhism, there's the Vipassana movement. Vipassana means insight. Um, but that is, is loosely tied to the Theravadan tradition. And it's presented in a, in a way, meaning insight in the methods they use, uh, that have nothing to do with what the Buddha taught. And I'm not, I'm not dismissing it or discrediting it, but it is important to understand that, that the modern Vipassana movement does not address the three marks of existence the way the Buddha does. Uh, in fact, I've read uh, probably 500 different suttas, maybe even more. I don't count them. And I've never come across the word Vipassana relating to what the Buddha actually taught. But he does consistently teach introspective insight, which is what Vipassana really means. Um, in our Tuesday-Saturday um, class or Sangha, we're going to start a 32-class structured study of Vipassana. And we are going to do it, Our this, this Thursday uh, Sangha is going to do it a little bit later in the year. There's a few other things that I want to get up to or get through or teach before we get to that. But this, uh, this chapter um, relates directly to what we're here to develop understanding of. Uh, the three marks of existence are Anicca, Anatta, and Dukkha. Anicca means impermanence, Anatta means not, the not-self characteristic, and dukkha means ongoing stress and suffering rooted in a misunderstanding of the self in relation to its always changing environment. Uh, so the Buddha used terms that were common during his time, such as anicca and anatta, in a completely different way than even the the so-called spiritual practitioners of his time used it. And certainly I use it in the Buddha's continued teaching um, is not is not represented by modern vipassana, and it, again, I'm I'm kind of emphasizing that point, uh, so you understand this really is the heart of the matter. Uh, the, so the Buddha used the term anatta in an uncommon way, much like he used the word karma. To, anatta means the not self characteristic. Uh, many traditions interpret that that there's no such thing as a self, or the, that um, the, the, there's even there's even no reason to consider the human self. And the Buddha taught something completely different than that. He simply used the term to describe that the views that we're holding of ourselves are anatta. They're not a self. They don't actually describe a self. And so we, we need to recognize and let go of those views, wrong views, and develop right views of ourselves and the impermanent world that we live in. And in so doing, and understanding what it truly means to be a human being and not negating or dismissing our humanness, we are able to end our own contributions to stress and suffering or the third mark of existence known as dukkha. So I'm not, I know you've all read the chapter. I hope you did. And you've all done your homework. I'm just going to read a couple of quotes and comment on that and then we'll have a discussion. So the Buddha's words on the three marks of existence and, the, and their importance. Be mindful of impermanence to end all conceit. So the the first line, and, and many suttas are like this. The, the the entire sutta is included in that first sentence, or the or the defining or initial paragraph of a sutta, and this defines the entire dhamma. Be mindful of impermanence to end conceit. But it's not that simple. What is what's the Buddha talking about? It's, he's talking about our relationship to the impermanence of all things in the world, but most importantly, our relationship to our own thoughts, words, and deeds that are impermanent and especially our thoughts. A conditioned mind is a, is a human mind that is conditioned to believe its own fabrications, 
You'll remember back on our class, I think it was two or three classes ago on dependent origination in the five clinging aggregates the, the following week, that the Buddha states that it is ignorance of four noble truths as a requisite condition, a required condition that lead to fabrications from that fabrication that feeds consciousness or an ongoing thinking rooted in that initial ignorance. Excuse me. And so anything that follows from that, once that mind rooted in ignorance of four noble truths is established, that mind is, that mind is prone to craving for and clinging to the fabrications it has developed of itself. And that's really the root cause of what we're getting at. The, the way we look at ourselves in relation to the world is rooted in a fabrication unless we understand what it really means to be a human being, which is how, why the Buddha taught four noble truths. And just to talk on this a little bit more, we, I, I mentioned it when we were going over the four noble truths. The four noble truths are noble because they're four truths that relate directly to the Dhamma. And so why did the Buddha teach just four truths? Because they only relate to the Dhamma. So I could say right here in, in Upper Black Eddy, Pennsylvania, it's a beautiful day and the sky is blue. That's true. But that has nothing to do with the Dhamma. I could tell you, that I have a golden, a golden doodle as a dog. That's true. But it's not a noble truth because it has nothing to do with the Dhamma. I can tell you that for years and years and years, I was engaged in a Buddhist practice that was rooted in rites and rituals. It led me nowhere. And none of that is it were noble truths. They were simply truths because I was doing them. So there's very specific truths that we learned earlier in our course, these four noble truths. And it's through developing that understanding that we, that we gain knowledge of what these three marks of existence mean. So I'm going to go back to that one line again. Be mindful of impermanence to end conceit. When impermanence is understood, it is also understood that none of this, meaning none of the worldly experience is self. The second line in this points again to directly to the, to the core of the Dhamma. We learn that nothing is personal in this world. And if we're taking things personal, that's how we create stress and suffering in our lives. Understanding not-self, understanding the not-self characteristic, understanding anatta, uproots conceit. Again, pointing to the whole point of the Dhamma. I need to understand the fabrications I've created or at least bought into about myself, recognize them, take a breath, wise restraint. We talked a little bit about that before our class started. Practice wise restraint in this moment and abandon those views. That's also right, part of right effort. I'm going to go back to that line because I only read half of it. Understanding not self uproots conceit. It uproots constant eye making, constantly establishing ourselves as the point of focus in the world. When fully established, release is complete. When fully established, when understanding the not-self characteristic, when understanding the fabrications I've made about myself is fully understood, release from those fabricated views is complete. It's a very direct and also a very simple teaching that is easily developed in a human life, provided we continue with practice. We, we, a few of us talked about, um, I think Henrietta said that she had, didn't have such a great week this week, but yet here she is continuing her Dhamma practice. That's a perfect example of ongoing Dhamma practice. Even when it doesn't feel like it's working so great or you might not be so pleased with your own efforts, you continue. And by continuing, you're continuing to actually establish true refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and a well-focused Sangha like we have here. Uh, another quote from that chapter. And the Buddha describes clearly what awakening is in completely non-ambiguous terms. Uh, and again, I'm not putting down modern Buddhist traditions, although I, I studied in most of the modern Buddhist schools and with some of the, the uh, foremost teachers, all sincere about what they were teaching. These were all wonderful people, great people to know, but they weren't teaching what the Buddha taught, I discovered after many years. And awakening was always taught in terms of something that isn't achievable in this human life. In every tradition I ever studied, awakening is not possible in this human life. It takes endless eons. And those of you that have been practicing in modern Buddhism probably heard it presented this way. It takes endless eons to, to establish awakening. And, it's, and most traditions say that there's no possible way to develop awakening at all. That the, the basic teachings are so far removed or archaic that they no longer work for human beings. The Buddha's four noble truths are also noble because they are timeless. They, they transcend time. 
Awakening is possible for every human being in this lifetime when you understand what the Buddha teaches as awakening. And so as I read this, just consider, is this something you feel like you can do? Awakening is understanding stress, abandoning abandoning the cause of stress, craving and clinging to fabricated views, experiencing the cessation of stress and suffering, and developing the path, the Eightfold Path, leading to the cessation of stress. Does anybody here, and please tell me, does anybody here feel that they can't do that? What the Buddha just described? No. Yeah, I, I don't, it, because it, 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 it's simple and direct, isn't it? And that doesn't mean that, when I say it's simple and direct, it doesn't mean that it's, it feels easy all the time. Although as you continue to develop the path, and, and maybe I'll put it this way, inch towards awakening, it does become easier and easier because you, one of the things that I emphasize and the Buddha emphasized is to always recognize the developing benefits of the Dhamma. And we always talk about that. Uh, Victoria talked about it earlier too this morning or this afternoon. Um, it's important to recognize the benefits we're gaining, the benefits in increased concentration, the benefits in, in less stressful experiences in our lives, the benefits of, of improved relationships with other people. Those are all an aspect of Dhamma practice that it's important to recognize because then we're encouraging ourselves to continue. You're not just l- listening to some bald-headed crazy guy saying, keep going, keep going. You'll have the motivation within yourself to do it by recognizing the benefits. These five factors of not-self are known as the five clinging aggregates. You remember we studied the five clinging aggregates um, in the second week of the chapter on dependent origination and the five clinging aggregates. When the Buddha describes dukkha, he always and consistently described dukkha or stress and suffering in this way. Birth is suffering, sickness is suffering, aging is suffering or dukkha, and death is dukkha or suffering. He continues... Not getting what you want is suffering. Getting what is undesired is suffering. And then he would always conclude that by saying this. In short, the five clinging aggregates are suffering. The five clinging aggregates are form, physical form and identifying with physical form. Feelings, identifying and, and, and using our feelings to describe our existence in our moment-by-moment life. Form, feelings, perception about those misunderstandings of form and feelings. Form, feeling, perceptions. Mental fabrications rooted in that initial ignorance. And finally, the fifth characteristic or the fifth clinging aggregate is consciousness. But remember, this is not consciousness with a grand C or a cosmic or a big C cosmic consciousness like it's often presented today. It's consciousness meaning ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. And if you look at yourself clearly and rooted in a well-concentrated mind, and look at these five aggregates, you'll realize that these are the things that we use, excuse me, to describe ourselves to ourselves. <laughs> to describe ourselves to ourselves and to others. How often do we describe how we're doing? Somebody asks you, how was your day? And you say, well, but you're, you're basing that on how you feel about your day. And how you feel about your day is rooted in a fabrication that your day should be different than it is, especially if you're describing uh, disappointment in your day. But also if you're saying, I had the most wonderful day of my life because I won the lottery or I, I broke par today. Josh would understand that on a golf course Though, or, and Kevin would too. And I might have too. We're, that, that's a self-identification with a temporary event that we're using to describe ourselves. And because that event is always going to change, and I remember, you know, days when I was playing good golf and I shoot a 74 the next day, and, and the next day I can't break 80. There's disappointment because I'm clinging to the 74 as me. And I'm taking the fact, <laughs> and Josh would raise his hand too, and I'm taking the fact that today I, I couldn't break 80 in a self-referential day too. And so I just wasted my whole day playing golf rather than enjoying the fine day. And I'm using kind of a silly analogy, um, but we all do that with all kinds of things that we attach ourselves to. Kevin, were you putting your... Uh, John, is that a, uh, a good, you just sort of just described the process of clinging, you know, clinging, yep. worldly events worldly attachments, worldly objects to this wrong view that we have of ourselves to define ourselves. You know, we, yes. crave, we crave for the self to be established and then we cling the objects of the world and the events of the world together to experience stress. That's, that's the process that's going on. Yes, and that's why they're called clinging aggregates because we do that clinging through these aggregates. 
through the physical form, through a feeling that arises, through the perception of those feelings that, that developed a mental fabrication because all of that process is rooted in ignorance of what's really occurring. And so, again, going back to the, to the golf analogy, if I could, what's really occurring is I'm, a, I'm a, a mature human being who's enjoying hitting a white ball around outside. That's what golf is. But when I, when I put a self-referential label on it, it has to be something else other than a, a, a pleasurable game. Um, it was always surprising to me, especially when I was a younger man and I caddied, that otherwise good and honest men wouldn't think twice about cheating at a silly game of golf because they were so wrapped up in it. And, and those of you, I hope this, you're, this relates to those of you that don't play golf or don't know anything about it. But it, it, we're, all, we're just talking about self-referential views that take over our lives because we decide that we need to be a certain way. I need to be the best golfer, the best meditation teacher, or the best meditator, or the best spouse, or the best this, or the best that, instead of just being a human being. The secret to having a, 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 I'll use, it almost came out of my mouth when I stopped myself, but it's true. The secret to having a successful human life is being present for life as life occurs, no matter what's occurring. And when we put a value judgment on what's occurring, I like this, I don't like that, we've lost our minds, literally. We've taken ourselves out of the present moment and we're stuck in the past on the judgment that's throwing our perception into the future that I hope to have a more satisfying moment in the next moment or the next day, or as what is common, much modern spiritual practice in a next lifetime. And what are we doing in that mental process? We're negating the, even the possibility of having a human life. When the Buddha talks about living a life rooted in ignorance of, of four noble truths, he calls it as living a life rooted in death. And he, he declares awakening as the deathless state. That doesn't mean that, that awakening leads to um, everlasting life. It means that in this moment, I'm no longer dead because of my clinging to ignorance. And I hope that's clear with everyone. Ignorance, that, uh, ignorance negates the possibility of living life in this moment. And of course, it doesn't mean that we're not having a human life, but we're having a human life rooted in anatta, a wrong view of self. And in that way, it's like not having a life at all because it's, we, live, we then live our lives feeding the fabrication and trying to support the fabrication rather than understand what it means to have to be a human being. And a, a, the Buddha described that quality of mind of understanding as common at peace. And if you look at all the things that motivate us to do the things that we do, even the, some of the horrible things that people do in life, it ultimately is chasing after creating a situation in this world where we feel we can be common at peace. Of course, we can never do that if we're grasping after things or trying to manipulate the world in ways that it can't be. We can only do it through understanding what it means to be a human being in this human life. Um, I just described the five, the five clinging aggregates. So I'm just going to conclude this. Um, there's a, a verse at the end of, um, I can't think of the name of the suit, but it's just beautiful. And it relates directly to, uh, in a slightly uh, metaphorical way, to what it looks like and what it feels like to awaken. Buddha's words from 2,600 years ago. Just as in the autumn, a farmer, plowing with a large plow, cuts through all the spreading roots, rootlets as he plows. In the same way, my dear friends, the perceiving of impermanence develops and frequently practiced, developed and frequently practiced, removes all sensual passion, abolishes all conceit of I am. So it's a great metaphor to think that's what we're doing with ourselves. We're cutting the roots out of our own fabrications of self. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember who it was that, that started talking about right effort a little bit earlier. But that is right effort. It's, it's the constant but gentle aspect of recognizing fabrications as they arise. Cut them at, at the root. How do we do it? We take a breath and unite our mind and our body. We stop reacting to these fabrications and in that moment, we're, we're using what we're developing in jhana practice in the present moment off of our cushion and reminding ourselves that this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. That's the path to awakening. Thank you for listening. Um, let me start uh, with uh, one of our teachers who's here with us tonight, Kevin. Um, today. 
Thank you, John, for this talk. Nice to revisit this teaching. Um, really nice to see everybody here, this, this attendance. Um, a couple of things that I really liked here, I mean, in that first sort of paragraph, you know, through your teachings, John, you've added sort of this modifier that we use to develop this understanding. And when we look at the words, be mindful of impermanence to end conceit, we can add the modifier at the end of that conceit or conceited wrong views. Yep. We're, we're being mindful of the ignorance of four noble truths that we're creating a view of self that it is not really in reality. And, and, that further leads us to be mindful of impermanence to end conceit of wrong views and of fabrications, as we talked about. Yeah. And further in this initial paragraph, when we understand not-self, the uprooting that you've mentioned is really um, providing some clarity. We have to uproot the craving. We have to uproot the clinging. We have to the need to establish ourselves all the time. We have to actually go very deep and be very honest, probably more honest than at any point in our lives because the yep. Dhamma provides us with that. So I really liked how you, you did that. And just a little personal story that you kind of touched on and, you know, the golf thing, for those of you who don't know me, I've played golf for probably 30 years of my 40 year life. And my, my a family member who uh, cares for me deeply and I care for them deeply used to ask me, uh, I used to play golf competitively as a kid in high school, college and amateur tournaments. I still do, but I'd have to get picked up from golf and, and the question would often be asked of me, how did I play? And, yeah. and at one point I really got upset and had a, had a breakdown with someone, this is very close to me, a family member and just said, I, I got so upset and just, you know, it was this reaction. Now that I look back, like it doesn't matter how I, I played. I, yeah. I didn't play. It doesn't matter. I played and I just did the activity. I did what I did. And, and it really helped me sort of, you know, find this path and find a path in golf that's provided longevity. So it's kind of a neat, neat story that, you know, I wasn't defined by the way I played as defined how I played or how I carried myself. If it was with integrity or with, you know, virtue, as we learn in the Dhamma, if I was acting within the virtuous factors and then it was a good day, whether I shot at a hundred or a 69, you know, and sometimes yeah. I shot under par. Um, so it was, it's just, it was an experience in life that, that's very valuable and meaningful to me and special because it was, a, like, again, a, a special family member. So. Yeah. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, teacher Kevin. Hello, Josh. Golfer Josh. Dr. Josh. Thank you for the teaching, John. Hi, everybody. I really enjoy this international format. Yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, I like the story in the chapter about the chair. Yeah. You just take a wooden chair, and before you put it together, it's just a bunch of sticks yep. lying on the floor. And then you put it together, and then we all decide to call it and name and form a chair. And I got to thinking that I'm just kind of a product of an egg and sperm and a certain DNA and... And uh, I call myself Josh in name and form, but uh, when I exit this world, I'm going to just kind of decay back into atoms and whatever. And uh, uh, that's okay now. Uh, yeah. And I'm a lot closer to it than a lot of you guys, but uh, <laughs> uh, that, that doesn't bother me particularly either. Yeah. But, uh, uh, it's just, I'm still, like a lot of people, uh, find it hard to be gentle on myself because I wake up in the morning with Josh and that's a fabricated Josh, I have to admit. And then, uh, uh I, then I try to do my meditation and I get away from a little bit of the fabricated Josh and try to go out into the world and, and uh, I am able to practice some of the stuff I've been learning here of uh, not taking things personally and yeah. it's so liberating when I can do that uh, not to let my hour be a good hour or a bad hour based upon how I'm treated or not treated mm -hmm. 
uh, uh, whatever. I'm still influenced by those things. I, I won't lie, but but uh, it's so much better uh, to apply some of these basic things that I'm learning here. And, and uh, um, so that's all for me. Thank that's you. great, Josh. Thank you. Uh, when you think about uh, it, Carl Sagan used to say, we're all star stuff or we all come from star stuff. And it's, it's unlikely that human beings would develop out of that, but yet we have. And that helps depersonalize things. Meaning the Buddha teaches that we don't need to know where we come from or where we're going. All that we need to realize is this is where we are. We're human beings having a human life. And as soon as we get into the speculative aspects of how did I get here and uh, the great stories of how the Buddha was born, uh, came out of the side of his mother's side, not, not born physically and all this stuff that's just, you know, just, it's just fable. Because what, what, what do I need to know right now? I'm a 65-year-old man having a human life and right now I happen to be teaching the Dhamma. That's my life. And that's where liberation lies with me living my life in this moment without the need for it to be any different than it is. And you're all developing that. That's what Josh is describing. That's, what has, what, that's what's liberating Josh from his old wrong views of himself while he's developing a right view of who he is in relation to the world. We're human beings. We don't need to know where we're, where we're from or where we're going, but we do need to know where we are. Years ago, I had a teacher that expressed this in a really great way. He wasn't teaching Buddhism, but something somewhat similar. He says, if you're in New York and you want to get to Chicago, but you believe you're in Los Angeles, he says, you can't get there. And think about that. If we want to develop the Dhamma, the Dhamma continually pushes us back, forces us back in a gentle way to who and what we are in this moment. Another way of talking about that is to call it wise restraint. Thank you, Josh. Alex, good to see you today. Hi, John. Yeah, good to see you and everybody else. Um, oh, I'm really tempted to take noble silence today, but it's so tempting to, to ask questions. Um, just a short reflection from me. Um, well, first of all, you, your teachings always realign me, so thank you. Thank you. I love coming here and then just listening to you speak, once you get going, I just feel very realigned with a few things you say. Yeah, it really you. helps, so thank you. Um, yeah, no, the only reflection I had was um, that, that my defaults, when you spoke about um, to cut the fabrications, no, not that bit, not that bit, oh, just being human beings, <coughs> and um, no matter what's occurring, we can be content. I think what causes me discontent is my default to just want to fix things. I'm a fixer. Yeah. <coughs> and that's, that's kind of the family I'm from as well. And um, it's my default. So I think I, I want to use wise restraint, which I also learned from you just before we started the call, um, to just take a breath every time I'm looking for something else to fix or worry about yep. and realize that I don't need to do that. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Content, you know, with nothing to fix and nothing yeah. to do. Um, I find that difficult, though, personally, but I want to practice doing nothing a bit more. And actually, there's probably a lot in the nothing, I guess. But yeah, that's me. Yeah. I, I don't want to take up too much time today. You're not. And, and it, if, if you mean by doing nothing, you mean practicing the Dhamma. That's it. The, um, there's a, I think you've heard me say that one of the common human characteristics is this very subtle level of self-loathing, that we're not just good enough, we need to always better ourselves, be better than I am right now. Uh, that, that's part of the fabric of our, uh, our society as well. But an, another aspect of this is this view of, of that we're all saviors. And that, that leads to the, to the notion that I should fix something or that I actually can fix something. Um, we're not. But the, if, if you look at some of the greatest difficulties throughout history and certainly in our time is this view of, of being a savior. Um, political parties engage in it all the time, that they, they think they're right because they're going to save the world or at least save their constituents. And if you take that point of view, if I'm the savior and you don't agree with me, then you're anti-savior. You're, you're the essence of evil, isn't it? 
And it's easy to fall into that trap of being the fixer and other people should listen to me because look what I'm doing. And it only creates stress and suffering. There's a suit that, I'll, that I'm, I'm not sure when I'm going to teach it uh, because there's these structured studies. Uh, but the Buddha talks about that the person we need to love the most, and this is going to, this might get your head spinning a little bit. The person we must hold most dear is ourselves. But we have to do it rooted in, in knowledge and understanding. It's not a self-centered view. If we really, and you've heard me say this, if we really care for ourselves, if we really love ourselves and all other sentient beings, the one thing we'll do is take to the Dhamma and awaken. Because that's the only way we know that we're not going to be contributing to stress and suffering to ourselves and, other, and, and the rest of humanity. It's the only surefire way. The Buddha recognized this. When he, before he left the palace grounds at the age of, of 29, he was in a position to help a lot of people. He had money and power uh, and a position. He was his, the, the prince in his father's kingdom. But he had this inherent understanding that there was something missing. And that's why he left that life of power and luxury, seeking understanding. And the first thing he did was separate himself from those entanglements. He cut his hair. Um, he put on rags and went and started walking around the countryside, first studying with different teachers and then finally realizing what the situation was and why he was having so much difficulty in understanding. His ignorance of Four Noble Truths, that's described in the Nagara Sutta, something we're going to come up against pretty soon. Thank you, Alex. Hello, Tom. Hi, John. Um, yeah, thanks um, Thanks for the teaching and uh, great to see everyone. Um, yeah, just very, I guess, the thing I would just reflect on is what um, you shared about, um, uh, you know, recognizing when you've, made pro or I, I don't know if the right word is progress but recognizing when you've the benefits of the practice let's let me put it like that because yep. um it just got me thinking too that this morning i got sent it was actually by vicky a, a survey like a well-being survey um it was kind of well-being at work kind of thing or well-being as an entrepreneur kind of survey and i realized i was re i was responding you know, have these one of these things where it's like rate from one to five how you feel about all of these different things, and I realised I was responding far higher than I ever would have um, in the past or even in the last few you know few years. And um, you know, um, uh, outwardly things haven't particularly got better in my life in the last few years. You know, I've I've had a relationship that's ended. I've had a business that's gone down the you know. Yeah. gone down the drain um, and and yet there's just some sort of inner strength that has come from um, uh, from the Dharma practice from this wisdom right which yep. added with a little bit of practice um, I just was I was like oh wow I'm actually responding better to this than I would have done yeah two years ago or certainly a lot better than five years ago or more so it's just, it's just a little moment of like aha moment of like okay I'm you know this 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 really really works it's not easy no. it's it's not easy at all and it takes practice but it really does bring uh, a sense of peace yeah, yeah not not external benefit your life might not look any better to someone else yeah. but then again that doesn't really matter does it doesn't. Um, um, so, so just that, that inner peace and clarity and calmness, um, and, and freedom. I think, I think you, Josh, you said also about, it's just liberating. It's just, you feel a bit more free. So yeah. I feel a bit of that. I still have bad days and, um, still not a five out of five in that area, but, but definitely <laughs> feel the benefit. So that's just the, the, the only thing I wanted to share. Uh, uh, thank you. Th thank you, Tom. It's again, it's so important to recognize the benefits because, Tom is now encouraging himself to continue because he's recognized the benefits rather than overlooking them because you're, you're more, um, your so-called Buddhist practice is more focused on your associations and your rites and rituals or, or, you know, somebody who just come out with a new poem or something. Uh, notice that we don't talk about these things and it's not that poetry or other things are, are bad or wrong. They just don't fit within a well-focused sangha, do they? We, we, the Buddha often taught that when you're gathered as a sangha, you speak about only the Dhamma. And in that way, we're always encouraging each other to develop awakening. Thank you, Tom. Mark, how are you today? 
John. Yeah, I'm good. Um, yeah, it's it's a good chapter. It's um, I think it might have been the, the first or second chapter where um, some of the words that came up were self-referential um, and compulsive thinking yeah. and impermanence. And um, they seem, or for me personally, be a, kind of the three main ingredients that have caused the most stress if you yeah. bring them together um, it, they kind of feed like a, a constant inner critic I suppose yeah uh, and then in turn because it's obviously there's this continuous kind of self being so self-referential when with other people it's sucking the energy out of them to kind of feed that yes and, and I, I probably that too. Self-reference has been. I even discussed it with Tom. Just it's on a daily basis. It's subconsciously or consciously just come up and helped to cut the noise um, when I notice that's coming up, um, and that's been really useful because I know it's one of those things where you're kind of the center of your own universe, but you're you're really not, you know so is everybody else. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's that's kind of what's been playing for the last few weeks in a, in a positive way, and every time of uh, that's come up, it's letting that go, which is basically just help relax. If anything else, yeah. yeah, and 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 that that might even seem uh, minor or almost insignificant, but the ability to really relax into your own life is uh, it's the essence of liberation, isn't it? Not because that means that's implying or it's having the direct experience of in this moment, nothing needs to be any different than it is, and I am at peace with myself and the world around me. It, it, it's a profound experience. Yeah, that's, that's how you know the Dhamma is working when you yep. have a calm mind and you notice it more often. You, you, yeah, like you said, be at peace with less than peaceful mind states. Yeah, you know, until I actually developed what the Buddha taught, I had. The most difficult relationships I had were the people that I felt that I loved the most. And I think you would all kind of say that. Um, and there's all kinds of subtle reasons for that uh, that I don't need to get into. But those relationships are just, they're, they're rooted in equanimity now. They, they're just, as all are. You know, equanimity means things are just in balance. There's, there's nothing, there's no big highs or no big lows. It's just life as life unfolds. And what an incredibly liberating experience that is. You know, and you're all developing it. So, thank you, Mark. Hello, Vicky. Hi, John. Hi, everyone. Oh, Meg, though. Thanks for the key. Thanks everyone for sharing. It's always helpful. Um, yeah, my my reflection this week is also. Um, yeah, I also feel like I've experienced benefits of the practice this week. Um, and I think I think one thing that's helped a lot is this. Um, uh, yeah, this reminder of um, of what's not a self, and I, I don't know. Difference that I know to week previous weeks that I feel like I was finally able to have some separation between. Um, like I feel I I feel like um, in previous weeks I was just so self identified how I was feeling and what I was thinking and constantly in this constant state of constantly judging, constantly evaluating it, like almost obsessively or yeah. felt obsessively. And I feel like I've gained some awareness of that tendency. Great. And maybe by um, having more, deepening my awareness, it's allowed me to like separate myself a bit, which I also felt that feeling of like freedom and liberation, um, kind of like an aha moment when I was able to do that. Um, so I feel um, I feel like it's helpful to just constantly remind myself yeah. <laughs> um, that these things are not me. And I, you know, I kind of say that, you know, to myself when I can, you know, it's not me, it's not myself. And I find that helpful. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I guess that's my <laughs> my sharing this week. Uh, thank um, you. Um, please go ahead. Oh, no, that's all. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Vicky. Again, you're describing how, the importance of recognizing that Dhamma practice is actually bringing practical benefits into your life. 
again, and that's self-encouraging, isn't it? it you you want to keep going because you see it. Uh, and there's, there's, um, there's no substitute and there's no teaching that would take you away from you have to experience it yourself. The Buddha often used the word ehepasika, which means come and see. But what that means within the framework of the Dhamma is you have to come and see for yourself or you won't continue. But you can by simply doing it, uh, engaging in Dhamma practice as is presented by the Buddha and your great teacher too. So <laughs> Thank you, Victoria. Richard, how are you? What do you think of your first class? Yeah, no, it, it was nice. It was really nice, uh, nice, um, John. Like, um, no, I, I'll be honest. Like, uh, I wanted to join because my friend um, Tom, a good friend uh, of mine, um, has been speaking highly of uh, these classes, and um, and yeah, and um, I know Tom's been through uh, through a lot, and I'm always um, really, um, I always really admire his uh, his spirit. And uh, and last year was really difficult for me, um, and Tom was really was really there for me to uh, help me um, get through it. And I think one thing that I've really taken from this class is um, basically, um, yeah, there's been a lot of changes in my life recently. And, and, and I think I've been really, um, yeah, I, I think last year for me was a, a real kind of uh, like a physical and mental kind of like um, dismantlement of, um, of, of the self, uh, of the physical and the mental. And, I, and I've made big changes um, this year, or well, last year, at the end of last year. I moved to a different country and began a different job and kind of like, Ended a long relationship and um, I'm really in, in, in a completely new life. And um, oh. what I've taken from this class is um, basically uh, I think I've been applying a lot of energy to um, to really kind of like um, putting a lot of force behind um, um, leaving my old life and, and really um, energetically kind of like um, uh, take on the, 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 um, this new challenge. I mean, I, I'm in a different country now with a different language. And even to the point where I'm like running like uh, extensively, but um, but I think what what this uh, meditation has done for me is um, the, the city's never felt so loud yet so quiet at the same time. I really enjoyed this um, this period. And 20 minutes at the time it sounded like quite a lot, but it, but it passed by really quickly. There's some nice energy um, happening here, and um, and yeah, I found it really um, yeah it, it, was, it was powerful. I enjoyed it. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Richard. Yeah, I mean, in, in the in the midst of chaos, we're able to to maintain jhana, that that calm and peaceful mind, that well concentrated mind. Uh, on the on the my website, becoming buddhacom uh, linked on the home page is a series of guided meditations, just like you heard here. The guidance in my meditation is related directly to the four foundations of mindfulness, as the Buddha taught. And there's from five to 45-minute guided meditations that you can listen to or download. Uh, and I suggest that start with what you're comfortable with, and even if it's just five minutes, if you can do that twice a day with about a 12-hour space between them, you'll begin to establish jhana practice. And then understand that the purpose of these classes is to integrate the Eightfold Path and the supportive uh, concepts of to develop awakening. Uh, learn to be very gentle with yourself and with the Dhamma. And if you continue, you're going to develop it like like we all talk about here. And I, all of you, I think I've said this many times, always feel free to contact me, send me an email. And uh, if you have any questions, we can always set up an email exchange or a phone call or, or even a private Zoom session. So if you feel that would be helpful to you, Richard, and getting you going, uh, just send me an email and we'll set it up. So I'm glad you joined us. Yeah, thank you. Jordan, how are you? Hi, yeah, I'm doing well, thanks. Enjoyed that and I enjoyed everyone's comments. It was very insightful, especially today. I resonated with what you guys were um, talking about uh, with golf. And I thought back to my, my days as a kid when I used to play football, soccer for Americans. And every Sunday morning... And if we lost, it would just completely ruin the whole day. It would just, yeah. I mean, Sundays were like, oh, got school tomorrow, got homework to do and stuff. And if we lost as well, that was that was awful. Yeah. And I never really thought about that until until just then, and how how much our winning or losing um, played a played a uh, massive part in how I in how I felt. And also, the team I supported were, were doing terribly in the Premier League as well. And every time they lost, that was. A, I mean, I had no stake in that game at all. I wouldn't even watch the games. I just feel, I just look at the results and 
oh god what's wrong with her this is rubbish yeah and if i have thinking if i ever have a kid i i would definitely um uh, encourage them to do sport for sports sake or enjoy the the, the, the joy of football for the the movement and the thrill of the, the ball at your feet or whatever um and that plays into so much like in school as well and where you are in the class and where you're on the league table and it's very hard to escape from i think um and i often try in recent years to in terms of things like where you are and comparing yourself to others because you always tend to look up and say oh that that person earns more than me or they have a nicer life a nicer house and i try and remind myself to think how i uh compare to those less fortunate or uh yeah you don't have what i have yeah but would you say that's still self referential and still putting yourself relative to other people and that's not a healthy thing you should be just um if you, i would say that it's something that you develop insight in i wouldn't say that it's healthy or unhealthy um it but moment by moment i'm making is to be recognized uh, so whenever you're comparing yourself to someone else as am I better than that person or better than this situation, of course, that's eye making. But when you recognize it, the first thing to do is to take a breath and not judge yourself harshly because it's a common human condition. And it's the reason why you're doing Dhamma practice, why you're drawn to it. Um, none of us really understand uh, okay, my life isn't really going the way I want it. Let me figure out what the Buddha said. But all of us are drawn here because we feel that there's something missing or there's something that um, we could understand about ourselves. That's what motivated the Buddha. He, he left his palace because he wanted to understand what is the cause of suffering and is there a way to end my contribution to suffering? And he figured it out. And so birth is suffering, sickness is suffering, aging is suffering, etc., etc. That's simply a recognition that that's part of having a human life. There's going to be disappointment. But if I stop taking it personally, it won't affect me. And I'll be able to live my life. Let me put that another way. And then each and every moment is meaningful. Why? Because I'm actually living it. So all of my life doesn't have to be peak experiences. Every day I don't have to win the lottery or shoot 64. Every, li- every day is meaningful simply because I'm living it now. And up until you know not that long ago, I wasn't. I was always in the past and in the future, as all of you have been. And the real benefit comes from just being here, no matter what's occurring. And I think you're all experiencing it too, Jordan. So uh, thank you for what you what you brought to our class. Henrietta, how are you? Is that Henrietta? Yeah, that's Henrietta. Henrietta, can you hear? Henrietta? Oh, hi. There you are. Oh, there you go. I'm having issues with my internet, um, but uh, yeah, I don't. Um, I don't have a question. It's more so that I've been reflecting on this idea of clinging to um, avoidance. It's not mm-hmm. something that I'd really thought of until about two weeks ago. So wow. it's not a question. It's more sort of something that I'm reflecting on. Yeah. So um, a central, another central theme of the Dharma. Is, is something called the three defilements that develop from ignorance of four noble truths. The three defilements are greed, aversion, or avoidance, resulting in deluded thinking. And again, I would say that it's significant that you recognize that in the past two weeks. And it, and again, it's not to judge ourselves when we find ourselves averse to something or in a, in a mind state of avoidance. It's simply to recognize that if, if in this moment um, I want to avoid what's occurring or I'm averse to what's occurring... It has to be rooted in eye-making, isn't it? It means in this moment, I want what's occurring to be different than it is. And ultimately, or subtly, that's, such a, that, that's a foolish thought, isn't it? Why? Because what's occurring is what's occurring. To, to, for me to want it to be different than it is, is somehow thinking that I can go back in the past and change what's occurring in this present moment. It's enough to recognize that it's occurring, take a breath, unite your mind and your body, and move into the next moment. It, it, in uh, as you continue to develop the Dhamma, Henrietta, and all of you, um, you'll learn the significant difference between approval and acceptance. 
it's, it's somewhat hardwired in human beings today that in order for me to accept something, I must first approve of it. It's in the approval process that I'm establishing eye-making. The Buddha, was, the Buddha taught radical acceptance by understanding the nature of self in relation to the world. As we diminish taking things personal, as we start seeing the impersonal nature of all things, then we stop doing that process. We stop insisting that things be different than they are. And in that, and in that way, we establish a calm and peaceful mind. So, uh, I hope you find that helpful too, Henriette, and, and all of you. Uh, I, I will say that you're, you are all developing the Dhamma as expected. Uh, it really is um, quite a joy uh, to be a part of your saga. And I keep going back to, we have to thank Tom for that because he's, he's really the guy that initiated all this. So thank you, Tom, and thank you all for joining today. Um, we'll we'll uh, continue with uh, the uh, chapter eight next week and we'll finish today's class uh, with Meta as we always do. So just take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath. And these are the Buddha's words on Metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. Unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. Peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state, let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, Free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision and being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Peace. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.